Habakkuk chapter 2. I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. Then the Lord answered me and said, Write the vision, make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous live by their faithfulness. Moreover, wealth is treacherous. The arrogant do not endure. They open their throats wide as shield. Like death, they never have enough. They gather all nations for themselves and collect all peoples as their own. Shall not everyone taunt such people and with mocking riddles say about them, Alas, for you who heap up what is not your own, how long will you load yourselves with goods taken in pledge? Will not your own creditors suddenly rise and those who make you tremble wake up? Then you will be booty for them, because you have plundered many nations. All that survive of the peoples shall plunder you. Because of human bloodshed and violence to the earth, to cities and all who live in them. Alas, for you who get evil gain for your houses, setting your nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. The very stones will cry out from the wall and the plaster will respond from the woodwork. Alas for you who build a town by bloodshed and found a city on iniquity. Is it not from the Lord of hosts that people labour only to feed the flames and nations weary themselves for nothing? But the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Alas for you who make your neighbours drink, pouring out your wrath until they are drunk in order to gaze on their nakedness. You will be sated with contempt instead of glory. Drink you yourself and stagger. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and shame will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. The destruction of the animals will terrify you because of human bloodshed and violence to the earth, to cities and all who live in them. What use is an idol once its maker has shaped it, a cast image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in what has been made. Though the product is only an idol, 
that cannot speak. Alas, for you who say to the wood, wake up to silent stone, rouse yourself, can it teach? See, it is plated with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you very much, Sally. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray this evening for open ears and open hearts to hear from your word. Amen. A couple of years back, the New York Times decided to do some really important research that will probably, quite possibly could change your lives. They, what they decided to do is to investigate the listening habits of the subscribers to Spotify. I don't, anyone here got a Spotify account? Or like me, do you just use the free version? Just the free one. Um, anyway, what they wanted to know was which years of our lives are most formative in determining our musical tastes. At what age is the peak? If you had to say, that's, that's my genre, that's my music. At what age are you where you reach that? Any ideas? Teenager, can be any more specific? 17? 15? Any advance? 18? Well, you're all fairly, you're obviously going in the right sort of ballpark. It's when you're teenage years, I'm sorry, gang, you're stuck with this now. If only you'd lived in the 90s, eh? Anyway, um, their discovery doesn't seem that surprising. It doesn't seem that surprising to you guys as well. Um, the music released when you're age 14, or actually 13 if you're a girl, 14 if you're a boy, is like to remain some of your favourites for decades to come. You're kind of stuck with that. And as I turned 14 in 1991, I think, actually, this is probably true. Next slide, please, Chris. I can vouch that the music of, of the late 80s and mid-90s feels like real music to me. Here's a little leaf through my record collection. I have to say, I have got a few of these on vinyl as well, so do come on round at some point. They're also the years I'm most likely to get the guess the year right in a pub quiz, which is, can be hazardous otherwise, but if it's going between, oh no, that was definitely March 1993, I can get that one on the head. Well, why am I telling you this? Well, it might explain some of my thinking um, when we come to the book of Habakkuk and this second chapter in Habakkuk. Those of a certain age um, may remember a song from back in 1995. It was a bit of a one-hit wonder from a, a singer named Joan Osborne. Next slide, please, Chris. The song was called One of Us. It's not Les Dennis, by the way. It's the other person. Um, that's Joan. Um, the song was called One of Us. Uh, you can have a listen when you get home on your Spotify account or on the free version. It's got the same sort of angsty lyrics and looping guitar riffs I still listen to now, but have a listen. In this song, Joan Osborne asks the listener a series of questions. What if God was one of us? Just a slob like one of us, just a stranger on the bus trying to make his way home. And in the opening verse, if God had a name, what would it be? And would you call it to his face if you were faced with him in all his glory? What would you ask if you had just one question? And this, I think, 
is a provoking thought. What would you ask God if you were face to face with him and you did have just one question? Now, my own life, and I have to confess, a degree of personal choice doesn't give me much time watching game shows on TV. In fact, I'm generally utterly perplexed by them. And I'm sure someone at the end will explain to me what on earth the point of pointless is, because I'm still completely baffled. Uh, Many of you remember another game show, and here we have got Les Dennis here, Family Fortunes. Anyone remember Family Fortunes? I think it was on until quite recently. Um, Here you've got two families, and they're battling it out for some cash by trying to guess correctly the answers to a survey. They've surveyed 100 members of the British public on a series of questions, and they had to try and correctly guess what the public would have said. Now, I'm afraid this evening I've got no cash prizes, but I have got a roving mic, if Catherine, if you don't mind uh, having that. Uh, and I want to see, hear from you what would be your one question for God, or possibly what you think um, if we asked members of the general public. And as luck would have it, All Souls Langham Place did go out in 2010 and ask a 1,000 Londoners this exact question. What would you ask God if you had just one question? Uh, any, any volunteers? Do wave and Catherine will bring you the mic. It was a Cliff Brexer, Cliff Richards record of many years ago. And it's stuck in my mind ever since. Why me, Lord? Why me? Thank you. Thank you very much. Yeah. Why me? A why question and why me? Not mistletoe and wine, this one. Other Cliff Richard records are available. Anyone else? Oh, we've got one here. Have I been good enough to go to heaven? Have I been good enough to go to heaven? Yes. So why me? Why have things happened to me? Have I done enough? Yeah, absolutely. And oh, we've got another one from a, a couple at the back there. Why is there so much suffering? Why is there so much suffering? Thank you, mate. Thank you. Did you know that Adam and Eve would take a bite of the apple? Okay. Did you have? Did you know what almost what what would be the consequence? Of, yeah, absolutely. Thanks. Uh, Mish is just wave at the back there, Kevin. Is there life on Mars? Is there life on Mars? Back to our record collection. I reckon that's in Mish's, isn't it? Brilliant. Thank you very much, Kevin. Thank you. Um, Next slide, please, Chris. So, well, here we have all souls have crunched the numbers. I don't know how well this projects. It was quite hard to see on my computer, so it's probably completely impossible to see now. But all souls categorise their answers to the questions by putting them essentially into five big headings. Some of them dealt with, with God's nature. Who are you? Do you exist? Uh, why don't you show yourselves? What are you like? Some are about his sovereignty, as Mark was sort of touching on there. How do you allow Satan, how do you allow him to continue to exist? How do you allow evil? Are you unable to stop it? Is it beyond your powers? Have you limited yourself in some way? Others ask questions about death um, and what happens after we die. And as we heard here, are we good enough to spend eternity with you? The second biggest group were concerned with the sort of meaning and purpose of life. Why are we here? Why did you create the world? 
but by far away the biggest group with over a third of the, the responses in total, whereas Elaine touched on, really were to do with suffering. Why do you allow suffering? Specifically, and it was often recurrent themes came up, why do you allow children to suffer, for wars to happen, for there to be such inequality where the rich grow richer and the poor poorer? And it's this latter largest group that leads us eventually to Habakkuk chapter 2 and Habakkuk's dialogue with God. And it would be perhaps useful if you've got a, a Bible in the pew to have, a, have it to hand as we'll look at a couple more verses in detail. It's page 886. So Habakkuk was, listening, uh, was living in Jerusalem at the end of the 7th century BC. And it had gone, Israel had gone on this downward trajectory from its glorious height with King David and King Solomon. In quite a few short years, the nation split in two, the northern half had been taken into captivity, and there was left a southern remnant which was spiralling into failure and vice. It was repeatedly invaded by its neighbours, and it's now no more than just essentially a vassal state of the huge Assyrian Empire. It's been subject to wars, looting, and its people have been deported. And Habakkuk is just appalled by what he sees around him. He cries out to God at the beginning of chapter 1, How long shall I cry for help and you won't listen? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? The wicked surround the righteous, therefore judgment comes forth perverted. And as we heard from Mark last week, God goes on to answer him in the subsequent verses of chapter 1, but perhaps not in the way that Habakkuk would have expected or certainly wanted. The Lord seems to reply, don't worry, I've got this in hand. Things may look bad, but fear not. I'm raising up a new global superpower, and it's going to come and finish Judah off completely. The Chaldeans are just famed for their violence and their greed. They place their faith fully in their own strength and power, and I'm raising them up and sending them to you shortly. Here they come. What? This wasn't the answer that Habakkuk was wanting. Hot on the heels of his first complaint, his next question comes straight from our family fortunes quiz and that all souls quiz and the questions we ourselves have. How can the Chaldeans, how can the Neo-Babylonians, this new empire, be God's solution to any problem? If you look in chapter 1 of, of Habakkuk, verse 13, Habakkuk then comes up with another complaint, another question. Your eyes are too pure to behold evil, and you cannot look on wrongdoing. Why do you look on the treacherous and are silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than they? And so here we are, as we heard from Sally here in chapter 2. Habakkuk waits for God to answer this second complaint, and God answers him once more. And this evening, for the rest of my talk, I'm going to look at three things, really. One, the way in which Habakkuk waits for the answer. Secondly, the way in which God answers this is second complaint. And then thirdly, the way in which God answers all of our questions that we have. Firstly, then, the way in which Habakkuk waits. Uh, next slide, please, Chris. Have a look with me at uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what he will answer concerning my complaint. 
Habakkuk has made his complaint, but he really actually wants to know what God's answer is. He's eager to hear it. He's like a guard on the city walls. He's standing on the ramparts and he's eagerly looking for God's response. A bit like in Psalm 130 where the psalmist cries out from the depths. My soul waits for the Lord, the psalmist says, more than those who watch for the morning. He's really looking to hear what God's going to say. And I was a bit challenged by this, really, because if I complain to God, I think quite often what I really want is to be heard. I want my complaint to be registered. I'm perhaps less concerned with a direct answer to the complaint, the answer to my doubts or questions, as much as to get it off my chest and point out the wrongdoing. And even if I hear an answer, I'll perhaps follow it up in that annoying way that pupils probably do to teachers with another question like a toddler. Well, that's all very well. Yes, Lord, that's very well. But what about this then? But Habakkuk asked his question, one of these classic questions of how an all-powerful, all-knowing, and fully just God can tolerate evil. And from ancient times onwards, such these sort of formulations and questions are well known. Often when people pose this sort of question, it's not really by those who necessarily want to hear the answer, but rather than those who are using it rhetorically and just want to demonstrate that there is no answer because there's no God, so, so they've proved their point almost. But Habakkuk has asked, and he now patiently and eagerly waits to hear what God says. And so secondly then, the way in which God answers. Um, next slide, please, Chris. God's answer isn't in a trite, easy formula or a philosophical thesis. Rather, it's in a vision. Down in verse 2 here, a series of pictures and parables that not only address Habakkuk's plea from chapter 1 that we heard, but also touch on the other themes that we've heard in our, in our survey, particularly regarding his character and his nature. The vision is to be written down. It's for everyone to hear, for us to receive it and have it as a written down copy. It's to be sent out into the world. It's to be made plain on tablets and sent out into the world to be seen by all. A runner might read it. And it's a vision that's universal. Yes, God is answering Habakkuk's complaint about his answer about the Chaldeans. But it's also a vision for the future. It's for the appointed time, it says. It speaks of the end. And its universal nature is picked up by the writers in the New Testament. Have a look in verse 4. Verse 4 urges us to look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous will live by their faith. And that last refrain is quoted no less than three times in the New Testament. And it shapes the whole way we look at our lives as disciples of Jesus. And not only our, future, our hope for the future, but also our behaviour now is shaped by our faith. But if I was going to try and summarise God's answer in chapter 2 in just one word, it would be this, justice. Now here we've got Lady Justice up above us, possibly over the old Bailey. She looks nice and shiny with a blue sky there. Now you'll notice that Lady Justice is blindfolded. And our more sort of modern, perhaps more generous interpretation of why Justice is wearing a blindfold is that, well, she's impartial. She'll give, oversee Justice with impartiality. But there's perhaps some evidence that it was originally, it was a satirical addition to the statue that a blindfold was placed on it because clearly she's blind to all the injustice that goes on in front of her. 
Not so with God, though. He sees humanity and humanity's actions in full and glorious technicolor. From verse 6 onwards, as we heard from Sally, he lists the actions of the unrighteous, not just of the coming Babylonian Empire, but all of those who preceded them and all of those that followed on from them throughout the centuries right up to the present day. He sees what they do and he pronounces his judgment on them. Alas, he says, woe to you. Alas from those who benefit from dishonest gain, for those who trust in their own fleeting strength. Those who trust in worldly projects, material gain, ill-gotten gain, and those who abuse and manipulate other people. Those who make idols to worship in place of worshipping the living God. Justice, it seems, is part of God's nature. It's woven into us as his creatures. We all recognise it. We intuitively acknowledge it, even if we perhaps shy away from its judgments. It's so woven into the fabric of creation that even the inanimate objects seem to have a sense of it. There's this great bit in verses 9 down to 11. Alas for those who get evil gain for their house, setting their nest on high. The very stones will cry out from the wall and the plaster will respond from the woodwork. Even if, nobody, even if you think nobody else sees the evil doings, God sees. Thirdly then, and finally, right in the middle of the chapter, at the centre of all these woes and pronouncements of judgement comes a key verse, a hinge almost, that points towards God's answer to all our questions. It's down in verse 14. Uh, last slide, please, Chris. But the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now this verse feels a bit familiar to me when I read this. Oh, is this where it's from? Is it just here in Habakkuk? And there's some hymns. I thought of Dave Harris actually. He'd probably be able to sing a hymn that's got this as a refrain in it. <laughs> He'll do it for you later, I'm sure. Possibly, but actually there's almost a completely identical verse from it back in Isaiah uh, that's perhaps the familiar one. And it might be worth you just flicking back to page 650. It's Isaiah chapter 11. And it's picked up again in verse 9 of chapter 11. And the prophecy of Isaiah was much earlier than Habakkuk's prophecy. It was a much earlier prophecy. And in this particular bit of Isaiah, he's predicting a future hope. Though the kingdom of David has been cut down, almost like a tree cut down to the very stump, a tree that's been felled, a shoot is going to grow out of that stump. And this verse is pointing towards a future when the causes of Habakkuk's complaint of evil, of injustice, and all our own questions and doubts for God will be settled once and for all. The shoot growing out of the stump of Jesse is not just a restoration of a human kingdom, but it's talking about one who's going to establish an entirely different kind of kingdom, not like the Assyrians, not like the Babylonians, or the Persians, or the Greeks, or the Romans or any empire that we can think that's followed them. Instead, as it says in Isaiah 11, the spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. 
on God's holy mountain, the Lord's holy mountain, there will be an end to the injustice and violence that Habakkuk has deplored. And what will mark out this new kingdom? Well, that the earth shall be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And the exciting take-home message from Habakkuk and from these verses is that we can be part of citizens of that kingdom now. We can be those that, like the runner, ready to read and take out God's vision into a world that's in rebellion against its creator. For as it says in Habakkuk, there is a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, let us come to you with all our questions and complaints. Even before a word is on our tongues, you know it completely. And as we look forward to the day when the earth is filled with the knowledge of you, mould us and shape us into citizens of your kingdom here and now, no longer subject to the rulers of the earth, but subject to the King of kings, to King Jesus himself. Amen.